From KOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Jack Gould from Common Cause, Nebraska, about the problems of special interest groups and lobbying in our politics. The idea of it wasn't that bad, but as you point out, there are easier ways to do those things. You could go bowling together. I mean, you could do you could do a lot of things, but climbing Mount Kilimanjaro it obviously made a lot of attention, and the fact that they were promoting the camaraderie and then everybody say, oh yeah this is a good thing and here we are saying well who's paying for it we're the bad guys but i mean this is this is what we do the public needs sunlight and the senators need to know that i mean they shouldn't try to find ways to avoid it they should be welcoming it we're talking about influence ethics and weirdly a hike up mount kilimanjaro stay tuned for the conversation after this break Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Money is good, right? It's fun to buy things. But there are contexts where you'd hope that the equation is more complicated than just dollar equals result, like politics, for example. Today, Jack Gould from Common Cause Nebraska is on the show to discuss the influence of lobbyists and special interest groups in our state legislature. Here is our conversation. I think it would be helpful to start with just kind of a primer on some of the words that we'll probably be using a lot throughout the next hour. So let's start with what is a special interest group? Well, it's it's really can it's pretty broad term because it can apply to any organization that is uh, trying to influence the legislature. I mean, that's what I'm looking at primarily. Right. So special interest could be anything from medical interest or political interest, or it could be social interest of any kind. So like, is it a particular form of, uh, I mean, is there paperwork you have to do to be a special interest group? Is it a more casual term? Or like, let's talk, let's narrow it to politics. Okay. Well, better to use the word principle if you're talking about lobbying. Principle is is uh, an individual who hires a lobbyist or an organization that hires a lobbyist. It could be either. And so um, they are obviously representing a special interest, whatever it might be. And uh, they register with Accountability and Disclosure Commission. Um, then they, if they choose to hire a lobbyist, which obviously that's what they're planning to do, they uh, uh, then the lobbyist himself has to be registered with the Accountability and Disclosure Commission. So if you are a paid lobbyist, if you're going to be paid for the job, uh, then you have to pay $200 to be registered. If you're like, I am a, a, a registered lobbyist, but I'm a volunteer unpaid, therefore I pay $15. So I'm a I'm a bargain <laughs> to be down at the Capitol, but it's it's good that they have everybody identified, and you know you can always check and lobbyists check on themselves to make sure that everybody is registered. Uh, they don't want to have somebody cashing in on the business if they aren't registered. So if maybe somebody isn't familiar with lobbying at all, what is a lobbyist? Well. Technically, we're all lobbyists. I mean, if we're trying to influence anything at the, in the legislature, uh, then you are, in all likelihood, a, a lobbyist of sorts. Again, paid, unpaid. Um, you have some limits on what you're allowed to do. I mean, the, a citizen can come in and talk with the senator, can go to a hearing, can speak at a hearing. They can do those things uh, on specific issues. Um, and they don't have to register. I mean, they're lobbying, but they don't have to register. Uh, if you're there on a regular basis 
and if you are testifying and if you're meeting with senators and you're becoming uh, trying to influence legislation, then you know you want to be registered. What's the line there between when you actually have to be registered and when you are just maybe it's your hobby to go down there and try to influence your agenda? Yeah, well, it's it's a delicate line. I mean, it it's something that really the Accountability and Disclosure Commission actually makes the decision on the fine line. I mean, when I first was there, I was just a, a volunteer coming off the street and I was testifying and doing the things that lobbyists would do. Uh, and then I was really told by one of the people in accountability and disclosure that you better register. You're here frequently. You're doing things here. So um, I then I knew that's what I had to do. Um, I filed... We have filed, our Common Cause has filed complaints against individuals who did not register and should have registered. Um, that's one of the things that we monitor is lobbying activity. So um, often if you file the complaint, there's an investigation and they, you know, generally um, they work it out. It doesn't mean that the person is, is put in jail or anything like that. They, they generally talk to the individual and they work out the situation. So this idea of a registered lobbyist, is that a relatively new concept? Is that a contemporary phenomenon? Has it been around for a long time? Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, lobbying in general has been there probably since the first uh, legislature was, uh, Congress was convened. I mean, there are people who have tried to influence the body, and and uh, so technically they are, they are lobbying. Um, as far as the paid part of it and as far as the – uh, registering part of it. I couldn't tell you exactly when that started, but it's been there a long time. Well, and I think that generally when people talk about lobbying, they talk about that with a different sort of connotation than if they were talking about uh, an enthusiast or an activist, right? Like part of the idea tends to be that it is emblematic of money making its way into the system, right? Yeah. So there's some general problems that lead to that connotation. Where, when is it that lobbying can start to be problematic? Well, again, depending on your point of view. I mean, if you're hiring the lobby lobbyist, you're really excited about having one. I mean, I had an example. I was speaking to a group about lobbying and, and a woman, I was a little hard on them, on the lobby. And a woman in the audience said that they had had trouble getting, they had a good cause and they had a good bill that they were trying to get passed and they couldn't, the organization she was with, she was a volunteer, they were unable to get it done. And then she said, well, they went to a specific lobbyist, she named him and said, you know, he was such a nice person, and he got got it done. We got this thing done. So my first question to her after she made that statement, I said, "Well, did you have to pay him?" And she said, "Oh yes, we had. He he wanted a lot of money, and we had to pay him." And so then I my next question was, "Is that the way democracy is supposed to work?" And she that was stumped her a little, I think it, and and it that that really brings down to what. A lobbyist does. I mean, they're paid to get something done. And we don't have a problem with that as an organization, Common Cause. What we have a problem with are some of the tools that the lobbyists use. And we try to get legislation passed that would make it a cleaner game. Let's put it that way. What are some of the tools that you have issues with? Well, um, they're the tools that the average person shouldn't feel they have to compete with. And that would be things like whining, dining, golfing, entertainment, tickets to events. Those are things that lobbyists use to gain access, for one thing, or 
more importantly, to gain favor and develop a relationship with the individuals. And, uh, you know, we have term limits so that the senators, there's a lot of new senators coming in. And so they are looking for help, and the lobby is there to help. <laughs> and so we would say that those tools should be limited. There, there really is no need for that. The public shouldn't feel they have to entertain or take people out in order to compete with a professional lobby. You shouldn't have to do those things. And therefore, the professional lobby, because many of them are lawyers and very capable guys and very personable people, they should be able to use those tools but not use uh, entertainment and things of that sort to, to have better access in the public. And that happens. I mean, I've been in meetings with senators. Um, because I'm with Common Cause, we don't take anybody to lunch. If we meet with them, we meet with them in their office. And uh, that's generally what the public expects. But I've been in talking with senators and had lobbyists walk in the door and say, Senator, you ready for lunch? And he'll say, oh, excuse me, Jack, I'm sorry, I've got to go. We have a lunch appointment. And I'm sitting there, maybe I've had 10 minutes with the senator, but I know he's going to get an hour and a half with the senator. So it's, it's, uh, it, it's really uh, troubling. I think the thing that's most troubling right now is the fact that lobbyists are involved in fundraising, campaign fundraising. Um, when you see money starting to change hands, then I think that's where you definitely have to draw the line. I'd draw the line a lot closer to the entertainment, but um, when you see the kind of thing that they do, they have in-session fundraisers. Well, okay, the bill's on the floor, the senators are voting, and all of a sudden there's uh, every week or so you've got what would be a fundraising breakfast, an in-session fundraiser. And when they have those, the public's not invited, the press isn't invited, but all of the other senators get a free invitation to breakfast. And the lobbyists are invited to come. And, but the lobbyists have to pay at the door. So they may pay, it used to be $100 at the door for a breakfast. Uh, I, I think it's more than that now, but I can't get in, so I don't know for sure. <laughs> but when they go there, they can also bring checks with them from their clients. So a lobbyist can come in the door, pay at the door. He gets an hour to talk with the senators and whoever's there. I mean, he, he would encourage senators to go to the breakfast. And then he gets to talk with them for however long the breakfast. They have to be back on the floor maybe in an hour, hour and a half. And so that kind of access, exclusive access, is being purchased really. And then the amount of money that can be raised, and I just recently was talking with a senator who had a, he was a little offended that I was reporting on the, breakfast fundraisers and how many there were. And he said, well, you know, he said, I, I can raise $7,000 at a breakfast. So I, I've heard that before, that, that that's kind of the expected amount because it's not just what they get at the door, it's what the senators, the lobbyists bring with them. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Jack Gould about the influence of lobbying and special interest groups on our political system. What do you think about money in politics? Does it concern you? What do you want to see done about it? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. So, okay, the idea here is they can raise $7,000 that a lobbyist more or less is doing the fundraising for them, gives it to them in favor of or in, in 
in expectation of votes that would correspond with what the lobbyist wants? Is that the basic exchange? That's the way I would describe it. But now the lobbyists would say they're just helping out. You know, they're trying to help these guys. And when you get senators, you know, it's it's terribly unfair, really, when you have senators from the far parts of the state who are trying to compete with raising money. Um, the best time for them to raise money is during the legislative session because they're not traveling in to have breakfast with the Senate with a lobbyist. Um, but if you're looking at uh, an incumbent, he can have six or eight of these years of breakfasts. Uh, they'll help him raise money, but the guy that may be running against him in his home district doesn't have that kind of access. So this is a access, This is money that flows in, giving an advantage to an incumbent. And it can start in their first year in office. They can be raising money for that for that purpose to get reelected. But then again, most of them go on to the next four years and get reelected and continue to have the fundraisers. And there is always a question, well, they're raising the money so that after four years of absence, they can come back, which they do, some do, or they may have other political ambitions and they want to build a war chest so that they can go on to be get compete for other offices. So it's a question of fairness, really. Um, and I guess I should make the point, too, that the fundraisers go on all year round, but they're particularly bad during a legislative session because the bill's on the floor, the senators are there, all of them are there, the lobbyist has access now, and he's pushing certain bills. Now, when the session's over, everybody goes home, but the lobby is there. They could still have fundraisers and host fundraisers. And they, uh, when usually they have one of their fundraisers, it's usually a group of lobbyists get together and pool their money, invite the senators, invite other lobbyists that may be interested in what they're doing. And so then they, and they have dinners and they have breakfasts and they have lunches. So it's a question of fairness, really, in the political system. How do you compete with that if you're a guy thinking about wanting to get elected? Right. Is there a line in there when maybe unethical uh, switches over into illegal, or is all of this perfectly legal? No, actually, we are, we are one of the few states, we have no limits on uh, lobbying. I mean, they, they, everything that we've talked about is legal. Um, and I, I would... Uh, I think what we would like to see, one, is to get rid of the in-session fundraisers. That would be the first step as far as the fundraising goes, is to get the in-session fundraisers because that's where they have you know, direct access to money, the bill, influence. It's all floating around there. And so that's, that's one of the things. And we've tried several times. We've had bills, um, but they, have not, uh, they haven't gotten out of committee. <laughs> is that because – I mean, at a certain point – you would have people potentially voting against a lot of fundraising that's done for them or, you know, the dinners that they might get, the concert tickets. You know, they want to go to Taylor Swift, so therefore we got to keep things as they are. Is that, is that kind of part of the idea here that uh, you don't want – or it's tricky, right, to convince people to give up certain comforts that they are comfortable with? Uh, well, it, it's, it's the kind of thing where you have um, – Let's say there's a big concert, and this happens in, in Lincoln, and uh, the lobbyists can get access to the tickets and give the tickets to the senators that are one or two that want to go to this concert or something. They can do that. Um, it's, you know, the, the one argument that the senators have is, you know, we're only paid $12,000 a year, 
and that is not enough. Half for, of one breakfast? Yeah, right. It's almost impossible for them to live on that $12,000 a year, especially if they have a family. So you're really, with the salary alone, you're restricting a lot of people from running for legislature. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's either a retired person or extremely wealthy or they're in a law firm. Law firms like to have senators, you know. Um, so you you have limited the field of people that have. Now, that isn't to say some people don't win. There are people who overcome it all <laughs> and still get elected. But those are things that are troubling, I think, to the, to the system, to, to democracy. Is Nebraska unique in its lack of limits on lobbying compared to other states? I, I would say yes. Um, you know, we depend on the, the issue, the lobbying issue. But, I mean, there are a number of states, and I can't give you the right number right now, maybe 12 or 13 states that don't allow in-session fundraisers. That That's about – there are other states that, let's say, no campaign contributions. There are states that don't allow them to do that. Um, so so the, all the things we've talked about, depending on the state, there's what's uh, the National uh, Convention of State Legislatures in Colorado um, monitors a lot of this. And they, of course, have us listed as none. <laughs> we have no regulations really on, on lobbying activity. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's a problem. Did there used to be any or have we always had none? No, there, there's, we've never really been able to get very much passed that would limit uh, that kind of activity. Uh, we've been able to get some things done with uh, uh, you know, conflicts of interest. We've had, we've had success with campaign finance, a lot of success with campaign finance. But when Citizens United came through, it threw out our campaign finance. So we have no limits on campaign finance. We're the, one of the only states... I mean, corporations can donate, lobbyists can donate, wealthy men can donate. I mean, anybody can donate, and they can donate any amount. We have no limits on amounts. So some states limit contributions like $2,000. Some states limit contributions to um, from, from corporations, say so they can't get into the game. Um, and you can do those things. But we've never had any success in Nebraska with getting any of that passed. So I guess the big question that we haven't gotten to yet then is where is the money coming from that's going into lobbying and special interest groups here in Nebraska? Well, it's it's difficult to, to uh, pin it down uh, to only one source. I mean, obviously, citizens you donate, rich ones, small – you know, a guy can give 20 bucks. I mean, anybody can make a donation, but corporations can make large donations. And wealthy men can make large donations. We've got a few of those. We do. We do. And they're very visible in, in the uh, campaign uh, contribution reporting. And so, okay, do we do we have numbers, though? Do we know how much money, say, Pete Ricketts, for example, is putting into these issues? Or is, does it get murkier about how exactly you go from the person with resources to the actual lobbyist? Well, uh, a lot of it depends on how much you uh, donate as to how visible you are. If you donate over $250, whether you're a corporation, a person, whatever, it's recorded. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I can go and look at that. I do look, so you'll see in the report that I do that I, I check on that kind of thing to see what, what people are donating. I can find out lobbying firms and how much they donate. Um, 
that's a good thing. I mean, sunlight is what you're looking for, and we certainly defend that every chance we get to make sure that that doesn't get messed with. Um, we've had bills uh, where <laughs> a lobbyist came in and actually testified that he wanted to increase the gift limit, which is we do have a gift limit uh, of uh, you, you have to uh, can't the senators can't accept gifts over a hundred dollars. If they do, then they have to report everything over a hundred dollars in intervals of like a hundred, two hundred, five hundred, a thousand. Anything over a thousand dollars has to be reported, but only that it's over a thousand dollars. So it could be twenty thousand dollars, and the senator might not necessarily uh, report the the actual amount. Although it does show up in other places because donors who donate that much money also have to report. So and the senators are good about reporting what they get in in campaign money. Right, they have to be pretty careful about that. But where does it all come from? Well, it comes from out of state, in state, comes from corporations, comes from individuals, comes from uh, the only place it doesn't come from is common cause. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, according to your report, uh, overall, in general, the amount of money that's coming in to special interest groups has been rising, right? It has. Why, um, why is that? It's successful. I mean, it's a... Uh, um, we're, we're talking about an increase in the last few years is about a million dollars a year. Um, the the income, that's the actual income of the lobby collectively. And so it started in 2000, if you go back and you can look at the records of going back then, in 2000 it was uh, $3 million total for the lobby. That was the total um, income um, for, for the lobby. Compensation is the term they use. So as the years have gone by, it's gotten more and more, and, and certainly in the last 10 years, you see this almost a million dollars a year is coming in, and the numbers of lobbyists has gone up too. So we're looking at, uh, what, 350 lobbyists, over 500 principals who hire lobbyists. Um, so it's... Uh, you know, it's a big business. So when you say it's successful, what are some examples of it being successful that might encourage more people to get into it? It's a lobbying. Well, uh, you know, if you look at, um, I'm trying to think of what would be, from from a lobbying standpoint, uh, Radcliffe and, and uh, the uh, Mueller-Roback, they are the two most generous in giving as well as in, in getting. So they're in the million and a half bracket, and they um, have the ability to contribute any amount they want. And they do, you know, out of the top nine, I think we had over $217,000 went to, from the lobby to, that's only the top, <laughs> that's only the top nine lobbying firms were, were able to put that kind of money into political campaigns. So um, comes from there. You mentioned the Ricketts family. They have been extremely generous over the years to individuals as well as uh, to causes, you know, and initiatives. They've been very active in that kind of thing. And I'm not, I mean, in some cases we're talking a million dollars. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's a question of, is that fair? You know, should, should one person or one group of people, family, whatever, be able to put that much money into campaigns and then, um, making contributions to individual candidates in the neighborhood of between five and $10,000. Uh, 
So, so for an average person running, when you get a check for 5000 or 10000 that means a lot. And it may give you some access down the road to people who have wealth. Right. And that is, uh, that, that's troubling. And there's also dark money, which is another concern because we find that people can run money through organizations um, and it's invisible. You can't track it back to the individuals. You can guess about where it came from, but you can't necessarily um, tell exactly and stand out and say, this is where the money came from because a lot of the 501c3s and 4s don't have to disclose their donors. So if you go out and form an organization, become a 501c4, um, and you collect a lot of money for a cause that you want to support and you're out there doing it, you don't have to tell anybody where your money came from. And that's that's another part of the, this whole problem, dark money. Right. The general problem, to zoom out all the way, is people like money, right? <laughs> yeah, they do. I don't know if you're going to solve that one exactly, but do you see a, a viable path forward to address the way either dark money or some of the uh, fairness issues that we've been talking about could be uh, realistically implemented in Nebraska? Well, we've, we've tried the dark money route a number of times. Senator Crawford from Omaha tried. Uh, Senator Blood has tried. Uh, and we've worked with them in trying to draft legislation, but it's it's difficult. First Amendment rights, money is speech, and because you know rich people get to speak louder and more often than poor people, that's the problem. But you know to get it more visible, um, you know you have to get greater disclosure, and and you have to be able to. One of the things we tried to do was limit the dark money ads. Uh, anyone, any ad where you were talking about a candidate by name in the last 30 days of the election cycle was would be illegal. In other words, you could talk about the issues. Candidates can talk about the issues, and do, but you can't run attack ads and you know get after somebody because their grandmother was in some organization or something. You know, there's some of the things that dark money people do is just plain cruel. You know that people. One point, I think, it was Senator Seiler was attacked for his attendance record, and uh, there were the Republican Party particularly had had um, he he was a Republican, and yet there were people from the party that were concerned about him, and so they came out with this the the a group called uh, Americans for Prosperity, I believe, and uh, Trees of Liberty. They were groups that were after Siler. And one of the sales pitches was that he had the worst attendance record of anybody in the legislature. Well, that was an outright lie. You know, I, I heard that. I saw the ad. So I went down and I checked his attendance record. You know, he had three days. And then I looked at the record of some of the people that were running, making comments about his inappropriateness. Uh, and their attendance records were terrible. I mean, we had one that had 40 days he missed out of 90 days session, he missed 40. Well, you know, what, what's he talking about? You know, here's a guy who missed three days. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to complain about that, you know? It was terrible. Siler was, was run out of town on, on lies. And there were other senators that have had this experience from dark money groups that have, um, they're, they're attacked. Uh, one of the favorite things was to take a picture of a, basketball player um, on a basketball court, you know, could be a Nebraska team, could be any team, and then taking the head of the senator and putting it on the basketball player and saying he's not a team player. So 
you know, people are going to look at that ad because it's a basketball player, and then they're going to see their senator and say, well, he's not a team player. So, you know, that's that's a tactic that dark money groups use. Um, and it's, again, terribly unfair because they usually do it in the last 30 days, and they um, there's no way that the person being attacked can get the TV, radio, you know, all the advertising that they need to compete with that attack. So it's it's a really a nasty way to do it, you know. And a candidate, it helps to explain why people want more money. I mean, if you're running, you maybe get ready for the for the last 30 days when the attack ads begin, and you want to be able to fight back. And so it's easy to blame the money for people getting more and more money. I got to have more money, and it's it's sad that the system has come to that. But you can also understand why senators that are incumbents trying to run again knowing that there could be an attack on them. They, they want to keep a pretty good war chest so they have the ability to, to fight back. I'm talking with Jack Gould about the influence of lobbying and special interest groups on our political system. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can find the backlog of all of our episodes wherever you get podcasts. And while you're there, we'd love it if you gave us a review. How do laws get passed? What sets the agenda in our legislature? Is it constituents talking with their representatives, as you might hope? Is it more complicated than that? Today, Jack Gould from Common Cause Nebraska is here to discuss the influence of lobbyists and special interest groups in our state. Here's the rest of our conversation. This seems pretty bleak. It does. Obviously, you're involved in this, so you can't be totally nihilistic about it. Is there, is there a way out of this hole? Well, there, there are a lot of things. When you look at what's done in other states, there are things that could be done here. I mean, we could have the – get rid of in-session fundraisers. It can, it can be done. Um, we could uh, put more pressure on the dark money groups to uh, limit their attacks in the last few days of the cycle. To make it a cleaner, we could um, limit the lobbyists from being involved in fundraising. They shouldn't. There's no reason for that. This, the public doesn't doesn't get involved other than making their own personal contribution. They don't go out and raise money and then help them raise money and pour it into getting it because of the, their their goal is access, and the public wants access too, but they can't compete with that kind of money. Right. So it's. Um, you keep looking at it from the standpoint there are ways that you can make uh, make it cleaner. And, uh, and it isn't, you know, you hate to be jumping on individuals all the time because uh, many of them are good people. They're just playing the game. You know, it's, it's just this is it. It's legal. And if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it and they're going to get access and I'm not. And, and it's, that's, that's the way they look at it. Now, you know, you, to make it clean, you've got to have the public committed to, to to legislation that will make it clean, and we we try to do that. And we've had we had a the campaign finance act that we put in place in 1992 uh, stood until 2012 when Citizens United came in, and that had spending limits. Not we were one of the few states that had limits on spending because we felt contribution limits could there were ways around it. But spending limits, we could monitor 
the senators and all elected officials as to how much they could spend. So we had a limit on on all the campaigns as to how much you could spend. And so there was no sense going out and making getting more money because you had the limit. And there was public money involved. And this was what really killed us. But uh, initially, it when a candidate announced he was going to run for office, he had to announce that he um, was going to run and that he would either abide by the limit or he would not abide by the limit. And if he signed the affidavit saying he would not abide by the limit, he had to say an estimate. You know, this is what I plan to spend. Okay, so at that point, um, when the campaign went on, there are reporting periods, and they all have to report what they're doing. And as it went along, there are times, there were four places where a non-abiding candidate could increase his spending limit, just saying, I'm, I want to increase my estimate. And he could do that. The candidate who was going to abide by the limit, let's say it was $75,000 for a legislative race, which is what it was in the beginning. Um, that's quite a limit. Um, but what happened, the uh, non-abiding candidates started estimating at like $100,000, $200,000. So we knew they were going to spend a lot of money. Well, one of the things that it that did, it provided public money for the difference between the limit and what he estimated. And so if the candidate estimated wanted to go high, wanted to spend $200,000, okay, they're going to put public money is going to go to the other candidate, like $200,000, so that he can compete. And there were reporting periods such that, you know, the candidates could, once as soon as they exceeded the limit, they were the candidate was getting money. And uh, so that, that worked very well um, until Citizens United got involved and said that, you know, money and free speech, money and speech are the same thing. And then there was a case in Arizona where they had what we had, which was a trigger that triggered public money. And the idea that you were limiting free speech and that it was being triggered by this limit that was out there, um, that was declared unconstitutional and Nebraska Supreme Court ruled that we were unconstitutional. So in 2012, we, we lost that. But it was very effective. And, you know, public money was only triggered 11 times from 1994, I think, until 2012. Public money was only triggered like 11 times, which is rather remarkable because most people went along with it. And we didn't have this huge, you know, jump in campaign spending until after 2012. If you go back and look at the records and how much was being spent on campaigns, it was pretty reasonable. Well, in, in that period... It seems like the the average person might say that the legislature was a little bit more functional than it is post twenty twelve, right? I think it. I think it was. I think that back this it, the the effort to get it passed started in nineteen eighty five, and it was just a citizen, a group of citizens, Republicans, Democrats, everybody, and they were worried that they were worried that Omaha campaigns were beginning to approach a hundred thousand dollars, and that average people couldn't run for office. What an idealistic thing. In Common Cause, we, we, we were very committed to coming up with something to do with that. And we looked at limits on contributions, but it wasn't working in other states. And so this, this worked. And it passed. And it was there for more than 10 years. And uh, then uh, 
you know, it all fell apart. And it's sad. Well, we have nothing. We are one of the few states that have no limits on campaign contributions, period, nothing. Well, as far as the, the idea that more public awareness and a, a public hunger for some change uh, can lead to some of the reforms that you've talked about, I think it's helpful for people to have specific concrete examples. And one of the ones that you wanted to talk about today was this hike up uh, Mount <laughs> Kilimanjaro. Now, I, I've heard of this. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The idea is you have uh, you have legislators from both parties going to Mount Kilimanjaro to hike up the mountain to symbolically show that they are working together instead of working together, say, in the legislature? I, I think it was advertised as they were setting an example. What's, what, what's the example? Of camaraderie and uh, the willingness to uh, take on a trying situation and share this, this would help them down the road to become better senators and be able to work together. Now, now when, I, when I hear that, I, it's funny to me that it just shows to me something about our brains being so filtered through reality TV that it's like <laughs> it needs to become this big international spectacle to create this symbol of working together as opposed to, you know, a good symbol of working together might be what you achieve during the legislative session, right? Exactly. Yes, I, I would agree with that. So, so I get stuck on the like, this seems dumb part, but you've asked some very concrete questions of what, who's paying for this, how much does it cost, right? right. So tell me, tell me some of the concerns you have about it. Well, initially, I, I kept hoping that the press would be asking about, you know, how are you paying for this? You know, they're getting $12,000 a year, and they do get a per diem, but it isn't anything close to, you know, what they could, what they were going to spend to climb this mountain. Do you have any idea how much it costs to go there and climb the mountain? Well, I had a number of estimates. <laughs> I called and checked on a, a, one of the mountain climbing outfits, and they said they had taken the fourth most, the, the second most difficult climb, and uh, just the climb alone was somewhere between four and five thousand dollars per person. Almost a breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> a big breakfast. <laughs> and then um, I, I kept wondering why doesn't the press come out and ask them? You know, we ought to know are they paying for it? Who's paying for it? And I kept thinking. You know, this is difficult because, you know, are they really willing to spend that much money for this experience that they were going to have? And the only way I could check on it was after the senators have to file in March of the next year. So they climbed the mountain in November in March. The 1st of March, they have what's called a C-1 form, which has to be filled out. And in that, they have to identify gifts that they've received. So up until that time, I really had nothing to go on. Uh, but I kept thinking that there must be somebody giving money to these guys to do this. And then uh, when that came around, there wasn't. It was looked like it was clean. These guys didn't get any money. And I thought, this is really amazing. Um, they, they were willing to spend, you know, the, the cheapest flight to Mount Kilimanjaro was, you know, what was it, $3,000 or $4,000? And so you, you add that on. Then I knew they stayed in a hotel before they went up, and they stayed in the hotel to take showers And when they got down. So, you know, we got hotel expenses. And so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really estimate because I didn't know. I did talk to Accountability and Disclosure and ask them a little bit about what they thought. They said probably $10,000 a person. That's from Accountability and Disclosure's estimate. Uh, so I was least, estimating below that, but yeah, leaves them with two thousand for the rest of the year. Yeah, that's right. So um, then, the on the March first, uh, I started looking to see 
the C1s and what was coming in. And I wasn't seeing anything about getting any help there. Um, and then uh, Senator Brewer mentioned that he had received a gift of $3,100 for uh, airfare and food supplements. And, and so then I, that was interesting, you know, and did the others do that or didn't they? The C1s were coming in without, some of them were late, which is quite common. I mean, once, two months late. So it was hard to get the information. But as they came in, uh, a number of them really didn't say anything about getting any help from anybody. One Senator Merman said none. He got no gifts. But I knew he'd gotten football tickets. So I, you know, I started questioning a little bit about that. And so... Um, in the end, uh, I, I, one of our board members, uh, found a picture of, from standard process on their Facebook page. And sure enough, here were five of our senator, five senators on top of the mountain in front of a sign holding this banner for standard process. And that was just about the same time that the, uh, remember the police officers that were seen in, in uniform supporting a candidate mm -hmm. and I thought how different is this um, for candidates on a mountain advertising food supplements and standard process does not have a great record on their food supplements you can check that out but I was a little surprised that they were not the most reliable source they've been in court a number of times about their food supplements so um, I called Joe Jordan who's an investigative reporter. He'd been at Channel 3, and, uh, and now he's with the, the uh, Omaha, or the Link, the Nebraska News Channel. And and he, uh, I knew he was very good at seeking these things out. And so I gave him the whole story. And Joe looked at it, and he tried to talk with the senators, and they didn't want to talk to him, asking about Mount Kilimanjaro and how did they pay for it and all that kind of thing. And so... We had the name Standard Process in Brewer's report, so he started calling Standard Process. And the first time he called, they said, oh, yes, we did. We, uh, we uh, gave each of them $3,100. Well, that's, that's a chunk. Mm -hmm. And so then you wonder, were there others? But you, we all knew that Standard Process had certainly helped out Brewer. And so then Joe started calling called them and said, well, did you, did you give them the money? And they, and they said, yes, each senator, we, we gave them money. So then I, I got a call from Joe saying, looks like they, they, get, they all got money, but they haven't reported it all. So then um, Joe got a call the very next day from Standard Process, and uh, they told him that uh, they, there was a, an error. They had called Senator... Uh, Hansen, Ben Hansen, and asked him, and Ben Hansen had told them that they didn't get the money and that they should send the money to charity. Well, they had said they did get the money, then they said it was an accounting error. So then, again, you have to know, you can't get much more information out of it, really, after you get that go that far. But then I talked with Accountability and Disclosure, and I said, you know, this is not right. This is what happened. I showed him a picture. And so then they, they sent letters to all the five senators saying, hey, you know, this is, there was a gift. You have to report it. You have to tell us what's going on. And then, you know, why were you holding this banner up on top of the mountain? And um, 
the senators responded. So there were a lot of these C1s, new ones. Some, some of them sent in three total. Others sent in two total. Um, but the C1s uh, took the language of that, that these standard process was a sponsor. Now, the question is, what is a sponsorship? They didn't say they were donors. They said they were sponsors. Or they said they were pledged money, which they never got. Then they put that in their C1s. Okay, you know, it's, it's hard, to, hard to argue with what they're doing. But the fact that they didn't report it, then they did report it. Standards said they got money, then they said they didn't get money. I mean, there were a lot of question marks there. And we did talk to Accountability and Disclosure about filing a complaint. They took the position that, well, they never got the money. Well, you know, <laughs> how are we going to prove it? That was our problem. Yeah. So um, the accountability asked them to send letters in explaining the whole process. But none of the letters mentioned standard process, none of them. And they just said that they were pledged money that they didn't get. They don't they mentioned standard process, but they don't mention holding the banner on the mountain. And that was the key to the whole thing. I mean, did they or didn't they go up on the mountain and hold the matter? <laughs> Obviously, they did. Yeah. And why did they do that? I mean, did they get paid for it or didn't they get paid for it? And if they didn't get paid for it, what are they doing with the banner up there? Right. So there had to be an exchange of something, whether it was food supplements or money. or. So that's why we did the story. And I said it was a different form of lobbying, which it is. I mean, Standard Process now has that picture, and I think it's still there on Facebook, LinkedIn, I mean, all of the public, all of the online <laughs> disclosure, that picture's there. They're selling products, and we're endorsing it. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Jack Gould about the influence of lobbying and special interest groups in our political system. What do you think about money in politics? Does it concern you? What do you want to see done about it? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Is, is there any speculation about what standard process wanted out of this or wanted from the senators? I think it was they, they wanted uh, the endorsement. I mean, they wanted to be able to say just what they're doing. You know, they want five Nebraska senators climb the mountain. They were using our product and they, uh, you know, they were able to do this mar marvelous thing. So it's like uh, NASCAR having logos on the cars. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting is that there were over 60 people that climbed that mountain that day. And Who, who were the other ones that were not senators? Well, there were f f five of them that were – one was related to Brewer. Um, there were about four or five others that were – had some connections with Brewer. They were all friends or relatives of Brewer's. Um, the thing that was interesting was the, 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 all the things that uh, were also going up the mountain with them. I mean, they had two chefs, they had two servers, they had uh, five guides. Wouldn't one do? I mean, are they going to get I've lost? Never climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I don't know how many guides you need. You only need one guide, I would think. He's out in front. We're following him. So <laughs> I don't know. It ended up. It ended up that they, uh, um, you know, it, it, the, the whole the whole thing was questionable, and it should have been investigated more in depth than what we were able to do. But I put it in the report because I thought it was fascinating and I thought it was something that demonstrates the fact that the reporting isn't very good. Right. Well, so, okay, so the senators, who were the five that were up there? 
Well, let's see. We, Brewer was the organizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben Hansen was the contact that they had with um, Standard Process. Uh, Wishart was the only female that went. Uh, Wayne was the only racial difference that they had with them. But I, it's almost like they wanted to have representation from <laughs> sex, race, <laughs> party. I mean, they had everything there, and it, it was to show that we all get along. Right. And I think uh, Merman, I think, was he the last one? I don't know how I said. I think Merman was, uh, I know he was on the trip, but I didn't know I gave you five, did I? Yeah, yeah, we got five. Okay. So so this is a good example, I think, because it shows the myriad problems, right? Yeah. Um, some with uh, the intention, some with what's actually being accomplished, some with just the murkiness of trying to figure out what's even happening, where is money going, yes. which then is how you even start to get to what's happening in return, maybe, to where that money's That's going. Right. And so I think this is a good example for people to, even though it doesn't have a, a solid ending, the fact that it ends in this murky space demonstrates where people might start to think about some of these problems. Yes. Um, what, if, what if we climbed a mountain to symbolically solve the problem of money? How would you feel about that? <laughs> I'd probably break my leg. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, the idea of it wasn't that bad. I mean, I think if, you, if you're going to do this, something like that, it, but as you point out, there are easier ways to do those things. You, you could go bowling together. I mean, right. you could do you could do a lot of things. But climbing Mount Kilimanjaro is a bit of a, a you know, it, it obviously made a lot of attention, a lot right. of people, and the fact that they were promoting the camaraderie and then everybody said, "Oh, yeah, this is a good thing." And here we are saying, "Well, who's paying for it?" You know, that's that's we're the bad guys. But I mean, this is this is what we do. I mean, you you can't the public needs sunlight and the the senators need to know that i mean they shouldn't try to find ways to avoid it they should be welcoming it and saying yeah this is what we did this is why we did it you know uh, the, you don't try to get around it and file five four excuse me three <laughs> c1s that are not completely telling the whole story you know you, you want to get it all out there and tell us you know why did you climb the mountain why did you show the banner why did you do all those things things that you're asking me <laughs> you know uh, that should be easy to find so for people who do want to learn more about the issue or get involved in efforts to try to address problems of dark money or lobbying or special interest groups where do you where would you recommend they go well, it, depending on, I mean, accountability and disclosure has excellent records, and that's where I go. So, I mean, if you if they really want to get to it, that you can go online and you can get it. It's not a simple website. It, it's it's complicated, and it's, I can see people getting lost on it. It took me quite a while to figure out how to get the information. They changed their computers here two years ago, and so the whole format became different. I was doing pretty good for a while. Then I got <laughs> had to come up and learn a whole new system. But I mean, you can do it. It's it's not, and you can always call. They're very good at accountability and disclosure. If you call them and say, you know, I'm trying to find out this information, in most cases, they're going to help you. And if, if uh, they can at least tell you how to get it and where to get it. And if you, like I made many times got lost and had to call them and say, can you help me? I got this far. Can you help me get further? And and they've always been very, very helpful. Um, the thing that's tough is that there's a lot more there that they know, that we know, and they can't really come out and go public with all they know. So you've got to ask to get the information. And, and so it's up to the press and the public 
to go to accountability, if you're trying to find out about gifts, if you're trying to find out about lobbying or any of those things, you can go there and you can get help. But it's, um, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing. And it, it takes time and learning the system and, and going after it. Um, and it doesn't always make you popular. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate you talking us through what are the basics of this. I think it's at least a good primer for people who maybe want to learn more, want to get involved. So thank you for being here today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and while you're there, please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. She's coming in 12.30 flights. The moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me towards salvation. I stopped an old man. Find some old forgotten